Southwest Airlines says it's ready to return to normal. One of the problems was they just couldn't get their crews and their planes in the right places to be able to take off. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A new county officer wants to create an age-friendly San Diego. We do have ageism in our society. You know, this way in which we act, think, and talk about aging can be really negative, but we have the power to change that. Local residents have big hopes for the new Black Arts and Culture District in Encanto, and a documentary explores the legacy of musician and activist Chunky Sanchez. That's ahead on Midday Edition. First, the news. Donations come in many forms. A sustaining membership, a one-time gift, even that extra vehicle you no longer need. Learn more about the advantages of donating a vehicle. Here's how. Go to kpbs.careasy.org or call 877-KPBS-CAR. Southwest Airlines flight cancellations in San Diego are expected to continue today, but good news may be on the horizon. The airline now says it hopes to resume its full schedule of flights tomorrow. At least two-thirds of the scheduled flights were scratched yesterday as frustrated passengers searched for other ways to get to their destinations. And that's not all they were searching for. One big piece of the Southwest meltdown is lost luggage. A food court at San Diego International became the new home for hundreds of orphaned suitcases, many filled with Christmas presents still waiting to be unwrapped. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Lori Weisberg. And Lori, welcome. Thank you. Now, in issuing this message about a return to normal, did Southwest say how it could achieve a full schedule after such a mess of canceled flights all week? Yeah, that that really is the big question. I'm I'm wondering the same thing. It, it was they've been doing little updates on their media website every day, and they're just saying they expect to return to normal by Friday, but they're not saying how. And we know from all the experts we've heard from over the last several days that it's a system that was ultimately doomed to failure during this kind of huge storm that preceded the meltdown. So it's unclear how they were able to put everything together. But we do know that one of the problems was they just couldn't get their crews in the right places to be able and their planes to be able to take off. Southwest Airlines operational system is quite different from all the major airlines. Um, and, And for that reason, it makes it much harder for them to connect passengers with the crew members, with the airplanes to be all in the right places. Um, Southwest operates on what's called a point-to-point system going from smaller city to smaller city. And they don't have a central hub like all the other airlines where the, the crew and the craft return to those hub airports. That's not the case with Southwest. So how they were able to finally right the ship um, this week is an unknown thing. We're not, not getting a lot of transparency from Southwest about what's going on. Now, in your most recent story about the situation at the airport, you call it controlled chaos. Can you tell us what that looks like? Well, I think up until yesterday, um, you actually had people sleeping overnight at the airport. You had line snaking, you know, in both inside the terminal and out. Um, baggage still was, you know, huge amounts of baggage were still there. That that hadn't changed. But the all the frantic passengers, the crowds and the throngs of people trying to get through on the phone or with agents, 
that had really started to diminish because the word was out. Southwest was canceling two thirds of its flights. So why bother even going to the airport? Um, the same thing with, you know, while we didn't go to the rental car center, um, more recently, like yesterday, they, um, that, that was also just a headache and nightmare. So I think that has settled down as people have figured out alternative ways to get to their destinations. What I can't figure out is how did so many pieces of luggage get separated from their owners? You know, you'd figure if the flight was canceled, the baggage would be taken off and reunited with the stuck passengers. I know. And I, I think that's funny. I've been thinking the same thing. And as I was talking to my colleague, John Wilkins, who was at the airport yesterday, and the way he and others explained it, some of it has to do with um, people were on connecting flights. A lot. I think a lot of this has to do with they made it their first flight and then their connecting flight um, was canceled. And then so their luggage was stranded and, and it went to, you know, went to that destination, but never got to San Diego. So a lot of it was that. Also, there was a lot of people, there were a lot of people who had arrived days ago, but their luggage uh, didn't make it yet. And so that they, they took like, we have an example of a, a woman who took a United flight instead, got to LA and then came to San Diego to retrieve her luggage that had finally arrived um, like a day before she did on this United flight. So it, it is kind of a mystery why so much luggage got messed up because some did, I guess, move on to other flights and then some just got stuck in those connecting airports where people's flights had been canceled. What is the outlook for airline travel now into and out of San Diego this weekend? Is it clear at all that people will be able to get home or get back here? So it looks like it is. I mean, anecdotally, I just was talking to a friend um, whose brother was supposed to, he thought his flight had been canceled. And then only just in the last few hours, it finally popped up as no longer canceled. So I guess if Southwest is true to its word and they're going to be back reasonably back to normal on Friday, then I think we will see things resuming and people getting on their, their flights because this will be a busy holiday weekend. And when you go on this, um, there's a flight tracking site called Flight Aware. Um, I don't have the data yet for San Diego, but when you look nationwide, the data is up and you see only 39 cancellations by Southwest when before there were hundreds and hundreds of cancellations. And, and you do see the cancellations for today, as Southwest said, if they're still operating on a limited schedule. But if this flight tracking uh, website is correct, it looks like they are on track to um, have all their flights or nearly all their flights back to normal. And we already know that all the other airlines, they did return to normal already. They, they didn't have the kinds of problems that Southwest has. So there's, unless there's severe weather in parts of the country, that could interfere. But it looks like we are finally getting back to normal. Okay, then. I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Lori Weisberg. Lori, thank you, and Happy New Year. Thank you, and Happy New Year to you as well. A new year means new ideas, new beginnings, and a fresh start. It also means we'll all be turning another year older. San Diego's senior population is one of its fastest-growing demographics. Projections are that the number of people over age 60 in the county will increase to a million in a little over a decade. To help prepare for the challenges and expand the opportunities of aging, the county has appointed its first chief geriatric officer. Dr. Lindsay Yorman's job is to make getting older in San Diego safer, healthier, and a little easier. 
Dr. Yorman joins me now and welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Maureen. I'm happy to be here. Now, it used to be the communities were okay with the idea that older people were not able to go as many places or do as many things because of their age. But that idea is changing, isn't it? Yes, it is changing, especially as we have more recognition that we do have ageism in our society, you know, this way in which we act, think, and talk about aging can be really negative, but we have the power to change that. And that has implications for our society having more support for mobility and all the things that we want to do as we get older. Now, a few years ago, the county put out what it called an aging roadmap with the goal of making San Diego more age-friendly. What does age-friendly mean in practical terms? To me, age-friendly means having a society and infrastructure in terms of social services, medical care that takes into account the diverse and unique needs of older people. It's interesting, as we get older, I think we become more and more different. For example, 70-year-olds, you'll see a lot more diversity in people than in five-year-olds. But I think an age-friendly society, first of all, recognizes that there is a lot of diversity within an age group and within the older age group, and then is aware of some of the unique needs that are present as we get older, such as focusing on our goals of care, our mobility, our our mentation. There are certain things that become a particular concern as we get older, and an age-friendly society takes that into account. Do you think enough healthcare providers know how to treat older patients in a way that really improves their lives? I really don't, unfortunately. I was really astounded after I did my geriatrics fellowship and I started clinical practice. I was shocked by how much of the evidence for what works for older people to improve outcomes wasn't actually being done in routine practice. And I ended up looking into this and it's actually been studied that when you look at evidence-based care for older people and how often it is implemented, it's about 30% of the time. So we have a long way to go in terms of closing that evidence practice gap and bringing the best practice and care for older people into the mainstream. Now, a big issue for seniors in San Diego is the high cost of living. A study found that nearly 25% of people over 65 in San Diego live on only about $25,000 a year. And the number of seniors experiencing homelessness, I think we've learned, has increased in the county. What can be done about that? It's a complex situation. There's many contributing factors, but some concrete things that can be done is, first of all, trying to combat ageism in the workplace. So if we can have work culture that helps to accommodate some of the changes that some of us experience as we age, that will help with income for older people. The other thing, of course, is affordable housing. And there is a lot of work to be done in that area. 
the aging and independent services within the county is working with groups such as the Office of Homeless Solutions um, and Planning and Development Services to provide resources and information about affordable housing programs and services to older people. People may be surprised to learn that you, yourself, Dr. Yerman, are decades away from old age. How did you develop an interest in the welfare of seniors? It really, for me, started with my relationship with my grandparents. I was blessed to have really wonderful grandparents. And I would spend time with them, and I'd also get to know some of their friends. And I was sometimes sad that I felt like a lot of the older people that I was meeting were sometimes underappreciated or not included in society as much as would advantage all of us. And I wanted to kind of be a force for change in that way to have a more age inclusive society. Instead of formulating an age friendly program from the top down, you said you want to hear from older San Diegans themselves about what they need. Tell us about that. Well, I think that movements are generally more powerful if um, the people whom they affect are involved in creating them. One of the things I want to do in my job is create forums for more engagement with older people around what their biggest needs are and um, how we can best tackle them. So there's a lot of different ways in which we might do that, including making ourselves in the county accessible by email, by phone, going out into the community to town halls, hearing people's feedback. Our aging and independent services actually on their website does have opportunities for older people to volunteer and or be part of the age-friendly roadmap and give their input. So I also encourage people to check out the county's aging and independent services website, click on volunteer. And one of the ways in which older people can volunteer is by um, joining a group and giving their really valued input and feedback. I have been speaking with San Diego's Chief Geriatric Officer, Dr. Lindsay Yorman, and I want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much, Maureen. Long ago, when the public square was the only place to share news, events, and happenings, people were drawn to it. Living in community with others was the route to understanding each other and the world around us. The public square has changed dramatically, but our need to learn and understand one another hasn't. This is Port of Entry. The Parker Edison Project. Listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. Thank you for listening to KPBS Podcast and for being part of our region's virtual public square, where you learn not only about the headlines of the day, but about culture, music, and the issues that are important to all of us. Help keep the virtual square alive and well. Support podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. And thanks again. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Warren Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman.
The San Diego Black Arts and Culture District in the Encanto neighborhood is taking form. KPBS reporter Jacob Ayer speaks to locals at what the designation means for the city and its often overlooked black communities. Walk into the world-famous Imperial Barbershop and you'll find it chock full of paintings, photographs, and artifacts that pay homage to black history in San Diego and beyond. The shop sits in the heart of the recently designated Black Arts and Culture District in Encanto. We're wanting this community to actually grow, and, and grow, it means art is the foundation of most growth. Tau Baraka is the shop's owner, and the art isn't just inside. Its back parking lot features some of the district's largest art pieces to date. We actually have had artists come out here to paint certain arts about, you know, our expression of, uh, of where, where we're at mentally and culturally. Art in the district comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors, says local artist Kim Phillips P. So I painted a number of murals on this street and in surrounding communities. She was overjoyed when the district became official. I was crying, um, tears of joy, of course. And the reason why is just because we see in other communities, like you go to Chicano Park, you immediately know where you are. You feel the sense of culture, you feel the sense of pride. And so that is something that I've always felt we deserve and that we need. The new cultural district covers eight blocks along Imperial Avenue, including Marie Whitman Memorial Park. That same part of town once hosted summertime street fairs. And just everybody would come out here in this wonderful weather in America's favorite city and just enjoy each other. This park became the staple of that and we want to bring that back. That's Dehan Blevins, CEO of the nonprofit arts organization Urban Warriors. He says San Diego used to be known as Harlem of the West and he hopes it'll soon be that again. So if we don't do this on purpose, create an epicenter to where people can come in a common ground and see people who look like them, see hair that looks like this, hear music that speaks of us, you can kind of forget who you are. The Arts District is part of San Diego City Council District 4, represented by Council Member Monica Montgomery Stepp. This is the district that historically has housed the African-American community in San Diego. This is the district that experienced the redlining. You know, this is the district where we formed community. The designation means funding to improve storefronts, enhance landscaping, and support small black-owned businesses, as well as adding freeway signage. Grant funding will be overseen by the San Diego African American Museum of Fine Arts, which is forming an advisory council to get community input. Gaidi Finney is the museum's executive director. A lot of times when people come to San Diego, they wonder where the black community is. I mean, many people have that problem. So having an area that we designate and we develop gives us that designation for people to have, you know, be proud of the area. Finney says the district will launch a website for the advisory board in the next two weeks. Phillips P plans to provide her voice and vision for the district's evolution. A little bit of everything from storefront improvement. I'd like to see infrastructure changes as far as driving down Imperial. Um, beautification when it comes to just the landscaping, trees, definitely more murals. But we just want to see love poured into the area. Back at the world famous Imperial Barbershop, Baraka says he's already starting to see the community's economic growth and is looking forward to the healing that this designation can bring. You have to have a culture to build a community or it will always be a hood. You know, so the cultural part of it has to come, whether it's art, whether it's uh, 
a, a sports, whether it has to be something there that people can grab a hold to. And I believe artists like the uh, universal message for bringing people together. Right now, art is bringing people together at Marie Widman Memorial Park on the last weekend of each month. The park will be one of the first places in the district to see upgrades. Jacob Ayer, KPBS News. An exhibition on display now at the Oceanside Museum of Art celebrates the work of artists who are also military veterans. Pop Smoke, a veteran art exhibition, features artists who use bright colors and basic shapes and common images. It's a tribute to well-known artists of the early pop art movement, including Jasper Johns and Roy Lichtenstein, who also happen to be veterans. Midday Edition co-host Jade Heinemann spoke with Pop Smoke curator Amber Zora earlier this year, and here's their conversation. Let's start with the name of the exhibit, Pop Smoke. What does it mean and what's it communicating to the people who see this exhibit? Um, well, popping a smoke grenade um, is something that you do when you have, like, when you want to take cover to leave um, a place. Uh, and it's kind of cheesy um, because I, I picked Pop Smoke as the name as a, giving a kind of nod to pop artists. Um, but also, you know, I was thinking about like just kind of leaving certain ideas behind about veteran artwork. So popping smoke on some of those ideas. Hmm. Well, when you think of a veteran art exhibit, you might not actually think about bright colors and some of the joyful imagery that is part of this exhibition. What story are you telling or what message are you sending? The early ideas about the show, we talked about how veterans sometimes shy away from healing art language or language about being a veteran artist. And I just kind of kept thinking, why do we have to be so serious all the time? Um, like, can we have a show that's somewhat joyful or weird and playful while also highlighting that veterans contain mon multitudes uh, and that we're not a monolithic group, um, that like veterans have come from different backgrounds and have different feelings around politics and also have different approaches to their art practice. You know, this this exhibit is a partnership between the Oceanside Museum of Art and the Veterans Art Project. And you held an open call for this for, for artists to submit their work, which really allowed you to get to know artists you might not have otherwise. Talk about that. Yeah, so there's, you know, different veteran art communities in Southern California. And the Oceanside Museum has like an art alliance and the Veteran Art Org has a group of folks too. But we really wanted to make sure that, you know, if there's veterans and service members that were in the area that we hadn't been able to reach out to yet, that they had the ability to like show their work as well. And so we had an open call and then I kind of juried or curated the exhibition and, you know, the artworks and at Oceanside are the ones that I felt were the strongest pieces for the exhibition. One of the artists whose work you included is Gina Herrera. Tell us about her and, and her art. Um, Gina creates these um, sculptural works. She's from Bakersfield, California, and they're um, works that are created out of detritus or trash. Um, she was deployed to Iraq and she saw the miles and miles of trash that the U.S. was leaving there, um, the U.S. Army was leaving there. And when she came back um, to the States, she didn't want to continue to produce stuff. Um, so she 
um, was respond. She was responding to that experience by creating um, these sculptures out of out of garbage. Another artist who created original work for the exhibition is Michael Stevens. Tell us about him and his work. So he um, he lives in Oceanside, and he created uh, all of the it, the 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 work is called uh, Lick Ten Steins. And so he really responded to Roy Lichtenstein's work in that like he was creating these beer signs that used a lot of similar colors to the pop art movement. And um, he just wanted to create new works, new cups. And so he kind of um, pushes back on kind of like healing arts being the only way to create. Like he just kind of wants to make new work and when I was talking to him about his work and why he used the bright colors, he's like, you know what, when I was in the military, it was all like olive drab, tan, you know, natural colors that when I create work now, I just want to use like bright colors. And, you know, as you mentioned earlier, the veteran community is not a monolith. How did you approach curating this exhibition to communicate that idea to people who would come to the exhibit? Thinking about, you know, every veteran has different approaches to the work. Some create for the healing benefits. Some, you know, just want to make cups out of clay. And some approach their work as activists or, you know, within like the social justice scope. And some are, you know, bringing a kind of more deep or like art historical side of things. And I, I created an exhibition that kind of touches on a lot of different ways that veterans create. Um, and, you know, I feel like most people don't have too many points of reference to the military. Um, I mean, if Southern California obviously does, <laughs> but some have like a very specific idea of what a veteran is. And I came back from Iraq when I was 21. So and most of my unit was under 25 years old and still had, you know, like baby fat in their che- on their cheekbones. And I don't think that when you think of a veteran, you think of like a 21-year-old woman, like a college student. Um, But I'm 36 now, and uh, I'm still a little bit of like an anomaly at uh, the VA hospital. So I wanted to make sure that like there was multiple perspectives um, that were represented within the the exhibition. I've been speaking with Amber Zora, curator of Pop Smoke, a veteran art exhibition on display now through January 15th at the Oceanside Museum of Art. And again, thanks for your time and sharing this art exhibit with us. Thank you. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Hindman. The late musician and activist Ramon Chunky Sanchez is already a fixture in San Diego's Chicano history. Now a new documentary is introducing him and his music to a wider audience. The PBS film Singing Our Way to Freedom follows Sanchez from his beginnings as a child of Mexican immigrants to his association with United Farm Workers President Cesar Chavez and ultimately is being named as a National Heritage Fellow by the National Endowment for Arts. And along the way, his songs and steadfast activism were pivotal in the creation of San Diego's own National Historic Landmark, Chicano Park.
Earlier this year, I spoke with Paul Espinosa, director of the documentary Singing Our Way to Freedom, and here's our conversation. Now, Chunky Sanchez sang about freedom just about everywhere he could for 40 years. What motivated his journey? Well, I think Chunky was in the right place at the right time. And when he came to San Diego State in 1970, it was really the height of the Chicano Civil Rights Movement. And he just kind of fit right in. He made connections with people there at San Diego State who were involved with music. He joined a musical group, La Rondaya Amerindia de Atzlan. In a very short period of time, he and the La Rondaya were traveling to the Central Valley and other places to basically play at demonstrations with Cesar Chavez. did he meet Cesar Chavez? Well, he met Cesar Chavez, actually, even before he got to San Diego. Cesar Chavez came to Blythe. Basically, at that time, he was he was traveling around, certainly around the state and actually around the Southwest, trying to organize farm workers. And Chunky has a very vivid memory of Chavez coming to Blythe and basically, you know, arguing for better working conditions for, for farm workers. And of course, this certainly was something that uh, Chunky was very eager to hear, I think. And like many people who were aware of the working conditions and the living conditions of many farm workers, what Chavez had to say really, you know, rang a bell for them. in your documentary that uh, Chunky became a Cesar Chavez go-to for a musical act during his rallies. What part did music play in the United Farm Workers' struggle? I think music played a very important role. I mean, certainly we're well aware of Cesar Chavez here in California. We now have a state holiday for Cesar Chavez. But I think music is something that, in retrospect, maybe doesn't get as much attention as it deserves. I think uh, Chavez was very aware that when he was having you know rallies and talks, that it was important to have musicians come on stage and really kind of inspire and engage the audience. Chavez would never let people talk for too long before he would bring musicians on stage. the value of, of music and also working with the Teatro Campesino with Luis Valdez, the importance of, of theater and other kinds of expressive culture to really connect with audiences. Now, you document those days on the picket line and on the road. What were they like for Chunky? 
you know, he was very young at that time. He was basically 19. And so I think like a lot of young people, I mean, he was just very swept up with the political momentum that was going on at that time. This was really the first time that Mexican-Americans, Chicanos, were on the national stage because of Cesar Chavez. Really, for the first time, people were seeing, you know, Mexican-Americans, Chicanos in national news. He also really saw or understood the value of music in particular in terms of making political change. How big a part would you say Chunky Sanchez played in the creation of Chicano Park here in San Diego? Well, I think Chunky was part of a larger, you know, student movement that basically, you know, took back Chicano Park. I think many people may know the story of Chicano Park. We tell a little bit of that in the film. And of course, Chunky, he wrote a very, a very important song, Chicano Park Samba, which really recounts the story of how Chicano Park came into being. That little piece of land under the Coronado Bridge in San Diego is known to people everywhere as Chicano Park. Beyond that, Chunky was a member of the Chicano Park Steering Committee for most of his life. He, he was certainly there. Chicano Park Day is uh, always like the third Saturday of April, and Chunky was usually there as the MC, playing music and engaging with people from the community and from, from around the state. What do you want people to learn about Chunky Sanchez through your documentary? I think Chunky provides a very good example of the power of young people. You know, Chunky was, at the time that a lot of the actions were taking place, a young person, and we see that the Chicano movement was really powered by young people, as many social movements really are powered by young people. I think we see the example of what a young activist can do. Obviously, Chunky was a musician, and he found, you know, his own method, I guess, for being engaged with, with the larger social world. And I think that he really gives inspiration to, let's say, other young people to sort of look at their own skills and see how they can apply their skills to making change in the world. things that I was always really impressed with about Chunky was that he was somebody very dedicated to his community, somebody who was really involved with building community throughout his career. Chunky continued to be active really all through to the end of his life in 2016. Really throughout his career, Chunky was very involved with his community and with really trying to make change in the community. That was Paul Espinosa, director of the documentary Singing Our Way to Freedom. You can stream the documentary on kpbs.org or through the PBS app. San Diego has a thriving, diverse music scene. From rock and roll to jazz to classical to rap, there's a lot to listen to in the border region and lots of artists making great music. One of those artists is rapper Rick Scales, one half of the hip-hop duo 18 Scales, along with MC Ralph Quasar. Not only is Scales a recording artist and performer, he also co-hosts the monthly Slappin' Hands Hip Hop and RB Showcase and frequently collaborates with the Old Globe's Word Up program. As part of KPBS's Influential series, we asked Scales to make us a playlist of music that influenced his work. Here are the tracks he chose in his own words. 
my family, we were kind of the family that we would sit around in the basement and listen to tapes and records and sing and dance and play the piano and harmonize together. So it's safe to say that their music was a part of my musical development. Music's always been a part of my life. It's always going to be a part of what I'm doing. Skeletons by Stevie Wonder. Its influence on me has been existent for as long as I've been alive. It's one of the first records I recall ever listening to. My mother and father had it on vinyl, and I just remember listening to the song, and it had like this funky vibe. And then as I got older and started to comprehend more what he was saying, I realized that it's uh, that there's a lot of social commentary in the song, and, that, and that's always had a, a large influence on not only how I view the world, but how I go about the music that I make because the song Skeletons in and of itself, it's very danceable, it's very fun, but he's also saying something in such a way where it's like, it's not direct, it's not like finger shaking, but it it is definitely like, you, you can tell that there's something going on deeper if you're not fully listening. That's always been one of my general favorite things about Stevie Wonder in general is his contrast, where it's like he'll have a song that sounds like a sad song, but it's a happy song or vice versa. The song Skeletons has basically been a song that's been part of my life for as far back as I can remember. Wow. Quicksand Millennium from The Roots is one of my favorite hip-hop songs of all time criminally underrated they have this way of going about music i don't even know how to explain it it's just a beautiful song when you listen to it and then you take into consideration what is being said in the song you know it was prior to you know the year 2000 where everyone thought the world was coming to an end and then the lyrical aspects of it the plays on the ideas is what always got to me like in the chorus they say somebody told me it's the end of the world but that's just for some Peace to the dead, strength to the chosen, quicksand millennium. Just the way that they went about the sonic aspects of it, the keys, the horns in the background that just kind of like glide in at the very beginning, their cadences and things of that nature are just things that really always resonated with me. A Tribe Called Quest award tour, one of my favorite songs ever. I remember when I first started identifying as like what you would call a hip hop head at a young age. I was about 14. I was playing a video game, actually. It was uh, Thrasher Skate and Destroy. They had a crazy soundtrack. I just remember being immediately drawn in by the beat. It was just the general vibe. Like it was clearly jazz influenced. 
It was fun. Then they had like the feature from, I think it was True Goy from De La Soul. The way he just went about it. We on the world tour with Muhammad, my man. Going each and every place with the mic in their hand. Once I heard that, it kind of made me realize rap music doesn't have to be about just money or selling drugs. It can just really be about whatever. Tribe Called Quest Award Tour is definitely a life-altering song for me. I've Been Watching You by Parliament is another one of those songs. The Clones of Dr. Funkenstein, it was in my family's vinyl collection. And I remember looking at the album cover and being like, what is this weird stuff as like a little kid? And then you check it out and you come across it. It's just a fun song. It's another one of those songs that there's such a blend of feelings and like ambience there. Like they have this way of singing that's very unconventional. It's another thing that's very whimsical, but then very serious. I love the way it comes in, the guitars, bass line. They have so many things going on. And then it's like when they come in, they're all kind of singing in unison with this weird kind of, I've been watching you, you know? Just the way that they do it, it's always had an influence on the way I go about making my music. It's just one of those things. Like, I just love George Clinton's voice, the way he plays with it. Like, it's a thing where it's, it doesn't take itself too seriously while seriously doing something is very important to me. Parliament, I've been watching you, Clones of Dr. Funkenstein, super influential for me. No Ideas Original by Nas. Oh man, I think it was my junior or senior year of high school. He had this project called The Lost Tapes, which is hands down my favorite Nas project. It comes in and it starts with the beat and you just hear Nas, uh, uh. And then the first thing that he says, no ideas original. There's nothing new under the sun. It's never what you do, but how it's done. What you base your happiness around material women in large paper. That makes you inferior, not major. No ideas original. There's nothing new under the sun. It's never what you do, but how it's done. What you base your happiness around material women in large paper. That means you inferior. That's like my mantra. Because here in the hip hop world, there is always a constant like, oh, well, I did this first. 
but did you? You know what I'm saying? Like everything's been done before. Everything's been said before. Pretty much every movie that you watch is a Shakespearean story, but it's the way that you go about doing those things. And then there's just so many different things about that song, the cadences, the way that he raps. To be able to say so much with so little words, it's always been something that I've tried to emulate. Like Nas is another one of my all-time favorites. No Ideas original from the Lost Tapes pops in my head like three, four times a day. Super influential. For today's mathematics, we are lost children. And this was going on in every New York ghetto. Kids listen, 5% of said it's pork and jello. We coincide, we in the same life. Maybe your time difference on a different coast, but we share the same sunlight. You're part of the world, might be like colors and gangs. While on my side, brothers are murdered for different things. But it all revolves around drugs, fame, and shorties. Stuck for your bling, strip for your chain, the same story. There's so many things going on in uh, the San Diego hip hop scene. It's one of those things where you think you're going to find out about it you're going to go there and there's nothing going on there's a lot you're going to pull up you're going to be blown away by how many people are in the scene how many people are participating and how many people are just there to be there there's pretty much always something going on in the city of san diego it's a beautiful time to be a part of San Diego hip hop. It's a beautiful scene, and I'm super lucky to be a part of it for sure. That was local rapper and hip-hop artist Rick Scales, who will be performing as part of 18 Scales live at the Music Box on July 27th. For more details, as well as a playlist of all of these tracks, go to our website, kpbs.org. Got me daydreaming what the men for in the bar bodyguard on me like a spaniard. Wasn't too much conversation, but could tell she wanted more front and heart. Like what you want my number for? Shorty knew the score. Kicked a little this and that in the air. She left like give me a call. Later on, thinking how I could get it involved. She asked what I'm trying to do. Problem solved. Now I ain't trying to just stand around and jam packed in the DJ laying it down. I'm thinking on the beat, you can rock to the rhythm on the floor. That was local rapper and hip-hop artist Rick Scales. For more details as well as a playlist of all these tracks, go to our website kpbs.org. Thank you.